Good morning. I want to begin telling you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've not heard the name, not only is it a mouthful and a really valuable scrabble hand, if you could use proper nouns, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during the Nazi regime. He was one of the very few pastors who did not give in to the pressures of the state church. In those days, in a lot of European countries, you would have a state church. And what the Nazis did, and this was brilliant on Hitler's part, don't get it twisted, Hitler was brilliant. Not a good man, but a brilliant man. Because he knew that if he could wield the minds and hearts of the pastors, he could influence the entire nation. And so he also carried the purse strings. Because if you were a pastor in the state church, then your paycheck, your, your livelihood was in the hands of the German National Socialistic State. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few who did not give in, who would not compromise the gospel, who would not change his stance, who would not align himself to a corrupt government. Even long before the killings in the concentration camps, he saw the writing on the wall. He was eventually martyred. We don't talk about this that often, but almost as many Christians were killed as Jews in the Holocaust. He was one of those pastors who only a few short days before the war was ended, he was killed in a gas chamber. Uh, so his body being incinerated after that, he has no body to put in a grave. But a church that was influenced by him bear him this very simple inscription. And if we could have any inscription on our tombstone, uh, on a placard in this case, it should be this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a witness of Jesus Christ among his brethren, period. Born February 4th, 1906, died April 9th, 1945. Why I bring him up is he wrote a beautiful little book, Life Together. One of the things that he did during this time of the Nazi regime as he was going in and out of, of, of Germany was he was put in charge of a seminary, and he did something radical. He didn't start day one with lectures and theology. The first two weeks were devoted to prayer. He actually lived among his students. He'd wake up with them. He would, he would stay up with them, and he would talk with them, and he'd engage with them. And so he wrote this book, Life Together, which essentially could be a commentary on our text this morning. And what I love about this book is his pastor's heart. He knew his Bible. He knew the gospel, but he cared so much about engaging with people and living life with, with people. So I'm going to share a series of quotes from the book, which, again, helping to coincide really well with this passage. But I want to begin with this one. When we think about Christian community, and I would argue that the church is simply community in Christ. We come together in Christ, and he uh, articulates this really well. He says, What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all future and into all eternity. It's an important point that our community is based on Christ. And what we've seen in this letter in Colossae, we don't need additional things added to it, and we always try to, to, to complicate things, and often when we complicate things, we miss the point. The point is who we are in Christ. He goes on to say, I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ. But through Christ, we do have one another, holy and for eternity. What a beautiful description to keep our eyes on the focus of this letter, the excellencies of Christ, who we are in him, the person and work, our identity in him, and that is essential in us understanding our identity with one another. So as we continue this discussion on union with Christ, this passage is specifically going to be talking about our union with one another, how our union with Christ unites us to him. I'm going to bring up uh, one of the most beautiful and short psalms that we have, Psalm 133. Psalm 133 says this, Behold, 
how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's amazing. There's a psalm just to the unity of brothers. And some of us guys can understand this well. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Now, we know the, the language, the 23rd Psalm, you anoint my head with oil. This was a sign of blessing. Uh, this was, it was used for sunburn, you know, for everything. It was a good thing. It's good for your skin. It's, it's a blessing. It's a time of abundance when you have oil running down your face. And a good, righteous beard as well. On the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes, it's likened to the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So just the beautiful water that is provided by God. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's amazing how in such a small passage we can see that the blessings of God like rain from heaven. The blessings of God, life evermore, and that is marked by the unity of brothers. And we see that in Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at unity. What bonds us to Christ, but specifically what bonds us to one another in Christ. And this is essential for the local church. Because we are called to live together in Christ. And this goes in the face of a lot of what we see in popular Christianity or, or when you talk to people. There is no such thing as individualistic Christianity. There is no such thing as me having a relationship with God apart from the people of God. Christ lived among the people. And we saw earlier in his prayer. In John 17, I want you to turn there. Because Jesus in his high priestly prayer, the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus to the Father, what does he repeat more than anything else? He repeats that you be one four times explicitly, and probably six or seven times implicitly. And so what does that tell us? Jesus' greatest desire is that we be one with one another. And our culture has weakened the church by saying, I can be a Christian on my own, by myself. I don't need other Christians. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died for all of us. And he asked the Father that we be one. But this is hard because we are individualistic consumers. We want to pull our own selves up by our own bootstraps. We want to be identified by what we want to be identified by. But what does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus desire for us? This is what we should desire. Because this is what Paul is explaining this morning. Look at chapter 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming for you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus is saying here, I'm not with them anymore. And what provision have I given? I'm going to send my spirit, the chapter before, but I also have them together. What do they need to be strong and to continue and to persevere while I'm gone? One another. Holy Father, keep them in your name by the name of the Father who sent the Son, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. This is powerful. How do we know that Christian unity is important? Because Jesus uses the very Trinity as his proving point for it. If the Father and the Son are one and he desires that for us, how does that get us to view divisions in the church. The Trinity is the perfect example of unity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. But they are one. That is who we are. We are not to be confused like we are conflated together. We are distinct. We are given our own personality. We are each persons, but we are one. And that is Jesus' prayer. But we live in an age of a divided church. And in many churches are, are divided within their own four walls. Jesus didn't just stop here in verse 11. Look at verse 20 and read a few verses here. I do not ask for these only, so he's transitioning from the disciples to everyone else, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So not just that the disciples are one, that everyone who would believe because of the teaching of the disciples should be one so that the world may believe. Our unity is our witness. We are called to be together so that the world may know that Jesus Christ reconciles. He reconciles uh, slave and free, Jew and Greek, male and female. And those of us who would never associate with each other now are brothers and sisters because of Christ. That is a witness to the world. And it cannot exist anywhere else. He goes on. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
the glory of our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, is his glory. And he gives the glory of unity to us. He gives his name to us that the world may see the witness. And then one more time as he closes out this prayer, verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that. Why did Jesus tell them about the Father? Why did Jesus point them to the Father? He wanted them to know the unity between him and the Father so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This should make us think very soberly about Christian unity. The emphasis here. The Trinity is our example. God, Father, Son in perfect unity, in perfect submission to one another. That's how we are to live. And this is Jesus' example. We also see the same thing in marriage. The two become one. You see the distinctness in each one. That they each serve their, their purpose, they each complement one another, and they both glorify God. Because now the two are reconciled. Now that, that which was apart is now together. That is the picture of Christ in the church, and that is the picture within the church. And so as we transition last week from looking at those things that divide, the things of the old man, the anger and the wrath and um, the sexual immorality and all these things that divide and focus on external things, now we're going to look at the things that unite, the things of the new man. And what's important to get is that Christ works in us and we die with him. This is a passive work. That means that he works in us. So we didn't die to him. He dies for us, works on us, but we die through him. So it's not our active work. But now we're going to talk about our active work of we put these sins to death. Last week, this is something that we do. Christ has done all the work to save us, but now that we are saved in our sanctification, we don't work toward our justification, but in our sanctification, we have an active part to play. We put sin to death and we put on Christ. We put to death these old things, and now we live for him. And everything we're going to see this morning, everything, comes out of the person and work of Christ. Everything that we're going to see this morning is our identity in him because of who he is. And so everything within the church finds its example and finds its foundation in Christ. And what's amazing is in this letter that has such strong Christology, think about this, one of the the most profound passages in all of Scripture He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the reconciler of all things, the creator of all things. Everything he said up to this point is so that the church may be united in him. He declares the glory and supremacy and sufficiency of who Christ is so that the church may find their union in him, so that the church may be bound together in him so that the love with which he shed on them in the cross would, be, would bind the church to one another. This is powerful, because the strongest Christological language is for the purpose of uniting the church. This is Paul's basis for unity. And so we should pay attention here. So let's pick up where, we're, where we left off in chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's do that before we walk into this passage. Our God and our Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. He is all. 
And if we are indeed in him, he is in us all. And he unites us all. Lord, I pray that this passage would be an encouragement to the church this morning of our union with you and our union with each other. And be a challenge where we are not united, where we are still divided. Or a challenge where we think of ourselves apart from the body. That you would be glorified. That our peace and unity in the body would be a witness to the world out there. That our God redeems, our God saves, our God brings together what can never be brought under any other circumstances. That the gospel affects hearts and minds. And the gospel is the proclamation of the reconciliation of all things through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So picking up in verse 9, last week we looked at all these negative commands, and so we're going to begin with one this week, but this one's different. Because this one gives a justification. Last week we saw these two lists, five negative things that you should not do. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. It comes with a foundation. Seeing that, or because that, you have put off the old self with its practices. So we must address our sins first. Before we get to one another, we must address our own failings and our own shortcomings. But it's for the purpose of one another. Now, something you may have missed if you just read this in a cursory reading or you looked ahead and maybe didn't spend a lot of time into it. But in each one of our sections this morning, there is one phrase that is repeated. One another. Do not lie to one another. We are to bear with one another in verse 13. And we are to teach and admonish one another in verse 16. Every section here is united by the phrase one another. Speaking of within the church, this is not a blanket call to anyone anywhere. This is speaking specifically within the church. And our newness, our union is with one another. Our love and our character is with one another. And the work that Christ does in us is with and among one another. And so this supports the overall theme of unity and harmony here. And see how, we'll see how Paul kind of weaves this together. But it's, it, this is a challenge to each one of us individually and the church as a whole. Do we see ourselves in, in light of, of one another? Or are we all staunch individualists who only think of ourselves first? And Paul has this pattern for the church that he uh, reiterates throughout our passage this morning and throughout many of his letters, so we should pay attention. So seeing that you put off the old self... It's the term man, the general term uh, man in the Greek. And this put off is the same as we saw in verse 2.15. Where in 2.15, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Same word. Jesus has put off the rulers and authorities. So because Jesus put off your old man, the same thing he did to Satan, he disarmed him. Our old man should be disarmed. The same way that Jesus put Satan aside, you should put aside your deceit. That's why we don't lie. That's why we don't lie to one another, because our God is truth. He saved us in truth so that we worship him in truth. That's the old man. That's what the old man does. Jesus died to put that old man to death. Don't breathe life into him, is what Paul's getting at here. And so that person who is transformed is the entire person. Put off the old self with its practices. We looked at this last week, the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You can have all the right doctrine in the world, but if it's not in love, if it's not put into your, your practice, then what's the point? If you love the Lord but don't walk according to the Lord, do you really love him? So we see this together that right doctrine leads to right practice. And you must put away the harmful old practices before you can walk in the new ones. And lying is an example of that. So Paul uses this as justification. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And this new self is the new man. Now, we looked last week at mortification. This week, we're going to look at vivification. So these words, mortification, to put to death, is an active thing that you do. Vivification, to put on life, it's an active thing that you do. As a new man, in our sanctification, as we grow in Christ, we put to death the old man, and we put on the new man in Christ continually. You are new, and the mark of the new man is put off the old, put on the new. Paul reiterates this in Ephesians. 
And the beautiful thing here with mortification, because if you just stick with, many people just stick with mortification. Many people just stick with, stop this sin, don't do this, don't do that. It becomes a bunch of negative commands. We're told to put off the old self. That's true, but we're not left naked. We're told to put on the new self. There's, there, there's good things that we're encouraged to do it the same way, and we must be careful to have that balance. We don't just put to death the negative. We put on the positive. And the reverse is true as well. You can't just say, do all these good things and never condemn the evil ones. Because we're, we're not just told to put off the stinking, filthy garments of the old kingdom. But we're also told to put on the new, spotless garments of the new kingdom. The wedding gown, the, the pure and blameless clothing of the bride of Christ. And because that new self is being renewed. Now, being renewed, this is a very unique aspect of, of the Greek language where it is an ongoing process that is being done to you. It's not something you do. So this is an ongoing act of God. God is continually updating your software. God is is continually working in you for himself. You are being renewed. It's a continual process. This is what God is working in us. And the goal in mind in this renewal is that you look like the image of your creator. Now, we know early on in Genesis that image bearers, we bear the image of God, but what does that mean? I mean, we're, we're, we're rational, we're moral, we're volitional, we're emotional, we're relational, we're given dominion over the earth. All these things are what makes us reflect the glory of God. But in all these things, we are growing in likeness. The whole purpose of this, the whole purpose of God working in us, renewing us, is so that we look more like Christ. We are being renewed. God works in us so that we can do good works to please him. And the more that he works in us, the more we look like Christ, and the more he is pleased, the more he's glorified. But take it a step further. Look at Paul's rationale here. Think about it. Early on in chapter 1, he said Christ is the image of the invisible God. In his humanity, he perfectly is the image of the invisible God. You have been given that image. You You have been given the image of perfect humanity. The one who perfectly glorified God, you are being recreated into the image of the creator. So in Christ, you become what it truly means to be human. You become humanity in him as it was meant to be before the fall. Because when he puts sin and death to death, now humanity is free to live in him. And so he restores humanity. The the first Adam, everything was marred and broken. But in the second Adam, he comes to restore humanity that we might be renewed in him after his image. So everything that is going on here is so that we look more like Christ. Long story short, this is the purpose of this whole thing. This is why we put off the old, put on the new, so we look more like Christ. So God is more glorified. This is the new man, the true humanity in Christ. And here, verse 12, where? In Christ, the new humanity in the church. Here is a unity that exists nowhere else. Our national model, e pluribus unum, out of many one. This is the true e pluribus unum. Out of many one. There is no more unified body than those who share the blood of Jesus Christ. But here, there is not. Now we get into the negatives of being united with Christ. And the negatives are putting divisions to death as well. Because Paul speaks of, here of relational disunity. The disunity of religious conviction the disunity of our cultural identity, and the disunity of social class. All of these things are addressed, and we're going to walk through those briefly. But the point here is that in each one of these, this is a division that exists externally, outside of us. But in Christ, those things disappear. There is not Greek and Jew. The greatest racial divide in Paul's day no longer exists because of Christ. Circumcised, uncircumcised. The greatest religious debate in Paul's day no longer exists because of Christ. There is neither barbarian nor Scythian. You guys don't understand these terms, but a barbarian is simply someone who's not a Greek speaker. They're a Neanderthal. They're they're not a Greek high society. And the Scythians were the worst of the worst of the barbarians. So basically, the social outcasts, those most looked down on, even they are now united if indeed they are in Christ. There is no longer slave or free. These social and um, status distinctions, 
no longer matter. And here's another thing that we have to kind of uh, make sure we, we address here. Christianity never promises to change your station in life. There is never a promise that the poor will become rich and the rich will become poor. That those distinctions don't matter. Because let me tell you, if you are a slave in Christ, you are rich. If you are poor in Christ, you are rich. And these things do not matter. These distinctions exist for a time. But in eternity, they have no bearing whatsoever. And Paul's trying to get them to see this eternal perspective that we looked at last week. Set your minds on things above. Don't look at your distinctions here on earth. Don't look at your religious divisions, your racial divisions, your social divisions, all of your cultural divisions. Galatians, he also includes male, female. That as well. Those divisions no longer become our primary identity. Why do these things no longer matter? Your skin color, your cultural background, your religious observance, your social standing, they no longer matter. Why? But Christ. Christ is all and in all. What a powerful statement. Why do all these things no longer matter? Because Christ is all. Everything you need, every other identity you may cling to, every other thing that you think defines you, look to Christ. He is all you need. He is your new primary identity. And if you are in him, he is in all. So whether you are a barbarian or you're an aristocrat, whether you are a rich plantation owner or you are a slave at the bottom of the totem pole, if you are in Christ, he is in you and he is all. None of these things matter. They're all temporary. They're all wasting away. But Christ, all his sufficiency, all his supremacy, if you are indeed in him, he is in you. He resides in all who are his. This is your primary identity. So Paul is essentially telling them there's no cause for pride. You have no cause for partiality. You have no cause for divisions within the body. Because are any of you greater than Christ? No? Good. You're all one before him. And this really bothers me. And people I generally agree with will make a big deal out of external divisions. And it's very popular today to talk about race or social class as if all these things are a primary identity. That is a false gospel. If anything other than Christ is your primary identity, you're teaching a false gospel. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't view ourselves by something other than Christ. And we don't view our relationships with each other by something other than Christ. Because false gospels divide by external markings. But the true gospel unites in the person and work of Christ. And that is our primary identity. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Not that you stop being Greek or not that you stop being Jew or you stop being male or female. But that is no longer your primary identity. That is no longer who you most associate with. Before I am a man, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Before I am an American or anything else, I am a blood-bought son of the living God. And everything else should pale in comparison. So now that we know that we are new and we are united in him, with that understanding, put on then. Then, as new men, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What a beautiful picture of the bride. You are chosen by the living God. You are holy, set apart, because he loves you. His love set on you shows you that you are his. And his election before the foundation of the earth should ground you in how much God loves you, how much he loves the bride of Christ, that he would send his son for them. And it's it's interesting to me that all of the terms that were most special about Israel as we walked through our study in Deuteronomy are now applied to the church. The things that God tells them again and again, I set my love on you, you are beloved, is now applied to the church. You are holy, set apart for me, is now applied to the church. I love you, It's now applied to the church. And we should not take that lightly because that is our identity. So in that identity, we can get back to this clothes metaphor. We put off the old and put on the new. Okay, we put off the old stinking garments of our old nation. You are now brought into the land of the king, and he has given you spotless white clothes. What do those white clothes look like? But what's interesting here, I want you to notice in each one of these before we go forward, we get many lists in the New Testament. This may seem similar to the, to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Some of them overlap. But what's interesting about this list is that every one of them requires another person. 
and the fruit of the Spirit, you can be joyful on your own. You can have peace on your own. But here, these require another person to show that these are real attributes. These are attributes that only exist within the church. And if you think that you can live your life without functioning within the church, you can't exemplify these. If you are not around other believers, you will not possess these. This is Christian high fashion right here. This is what the people of Christ should wear because this is what he wore for us. Every fashion trend in the world is always changing. It'll, be, it'll wear out very soon, but this never wears out. And I want you to see as we look through each of these terms how Christ exemplifies each one of these. Number one, compassionate hearts. This is not a word, but a phrase. It is affectionate sympathy. Because you love someone, you truly care about what's going on in their life. You have a loving concern. How much greater loving concern do we see in Christ who saw us in our wretchedness, in our wickedness, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins and set his heart on us? That is a compassionate heart. And if Christ loved us that way, we should love one another that way. The next one, kindness. Kindness. This is the compassionate heart or the affectionate sympathy applied to someone else. The affectionate heart is the feeling. The kindness is the action. It's the goodness and grace of the outflowing of that compassionate heart. It is compassion in action. And think about the kindness that Jesus showed to those who were persecuting him. The kindness he showed to his knuckle-headed disciples. The kindness he shows in us in our weakness. Next one, humility. This is Got to be careful for the distinction here. This is a low view of yourself in order to focus on others. Now, this is not self-deprecation. This is not beat yourself up time. I love how C.S. Lewis quotes this really well. Not to think less of yourself, quali- qualitative, but to think of yourself less, quantitative. Don't think less of yourself like putting yourself down in order to lift others up. It is to think of yourself less often. This is humility. And how do we see that in Christ? every step of his life. Because if he only thought about himself, he would never leave the throne and take on our flesh. He would never walk and get dirt between his toes and be hungry and be brokenhearted over the death of of Lazarus, be beaten and mocked for us. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant so that we might become the people of God. Meekness. Now, often this is used to describe being a doormat. This is not doormatness. Meekness is gentle, mild, not harsh, but dignified. But meekness is probably uh, best summed up in power under control. No one is the greater example of power under control than Christ. If my kingdom were of this world, I would have legions of angels who would come and wipe you all out. But my power is under control. We are given power in Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit resides in us but we do not use it as license for sin and to take that out on others. Patience. Patience is one of these that requires another one. We looked at this earlier on in in chapter 1. It requires another person. There is nothing that will give you more patience than being around another person. We were joking yesterday that two things you don't want to pray for, humility and patience. Because if you pray for humility, God will give you situations that will humble you. If you pray for patience, he will put someone in your life who will teach you patience. Pray for patience. Because Christ was patient for us. He was long-suffering toward us. His forbearance for us. He has not returned yet because there are sheep who have not yet come home. He is long-suffering toward us in our sin and in other sinners who have not yet come home. Christ's patience. You know, the the phrase in 2 Peter, to God a thousand years as a day and a day as a thousand years. The whole point of that is to show that God is patient so that none of you would perish. None of the saints would perish. He is patient. He is long-suffering, watching the sin and brokenness on this planet so none of his will perish. How could we not be patient with one another? Here's where I draw on Dietrich Bonhoeffer again, and this is great. We talk about humility here. If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, 
I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. Amen? How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as any worse than my own? You have to have a proper view of your own self in order to be humble and serve others. Put on those clothes. Because putting on those clothes makes it possible to do what comes next, bearing with one another. This is not just putting up with one another. This is bearing with one another. You've got two bags of rocks on your back. Give me one. Not just I'm bearing with them at arm's length. This is bearing with one another. Bonhoeffer explains this great. Look at this next one. The Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. Ooh. The burden of man, men, was so heavy that God himself, for God himself, that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ. How can we not bear one another's burdens? When in that person, that brother and sister in Christ, you see the cross that Christ bore for them and the cross that Christ bore for us. If the gospel does not encourage you to bear one another's burdens, you don't know the gospel. And this is only out of compassionate hearts and kindness and meekness and humility. And, let's take it a step further, if you have a complaint. Now, bearing a burden, okay, um, when, if someone's going through a difficult time, that's a little easier to, to, to bear with them than if they're the difficult ones. Amen? Because if you've got a complaint against someone, even if it's a legitimate complaint, forgive them. It's easy to bear with someone's difficult situation easier than a difficult person. But look what Paul says here. And if you have a complaint against another, you bear with one another. And if you have a complaint against another, again, this is interactions within the church, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. How can you bear with someone if you can't forgive them? Forgiveness is huge. David yesterday told me that forgiveness frees us to love, and love frees us to forgive. That's why this forgiveness sets up love really well. The love of the church helps us understand the love of Christ for us and our forgiveness. If we have been forgiven all of our sins, how can we not? Remember how much your Savior has forgiven you. Every time you feel like I can't forgive them, start listing out your sins. Every time you feel like someone else is not worthy of of my forgiveness, make a list. And if you stop at one sheet, keep going. And if you you stop at at, at one sheet, I'll give you a whole other pad. We can spend some time on this. How much have you been forgiven? Remember Peter, Matthew 18. Peter says, how many times did I forgive my brother? Seven times? Seventy-seven times. The perfect number of forgiveness. Again, this is misused. It's not to be applied outside of the church. In the church. Now, forgiveness is a good thing in all regards. But there's a certain forgiveness that happens between brothers who share the blood of Christ. And we are to forgive them again and again and again. Forgiveness frees us to love and love frees us to forgive. So that above all else, we put on love. Without love, all these things are moralism. Without love, this is just command to do good things. This is a good question for us. What are the motivations for my actions? Do I love the church? Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I love someone enough to bear with them? Do I love someone enough to forgive them? And I beat this drum all the time. Was this loving? And when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about evangelism, do you love the person who's standing in front of you? I beat this drum because Jesus did. Because in him we understand love. In 1 John 4, we know what love is because Father, the Father sent the Son out of love for us. And Jesus tells us everything is to be done out of love for the Lord and love for one another. And this is what binds in perfect harmony. The love of Christ binds us to him. And the love of Christ that resides within us binds us to one another. Love becomes the ligaments that connect the pieces of the body and make us inseparable. 
And love is also the stitching between these, these, these clothes that, that, that we wear. Love is what, guard, what governs all this. And you cannot understand love unless you have been forgiven. Unless you understand the love that God the Father has for his own by sending God the Son to show his love. And how is it that the love in the body is possible? And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now we get into this this next section that shows how we are fully transformed in Christ. First, we deal with the heart. The peace of Christ, only the peace of Christ ruling in your heart can accomplish love for other believers. We are that hard to love that if we do not rest on the peace of Christ, and we've seen several times in Colossians, what is the peace of Christ? He made peace by what? The blood of the cross. It is the blood of the cross. It is the crucified Savior, risen for us to have new life. That is the peace that rules in our hearts. Because if we remember that, if we reflect on what Christ has done for us, peace is easy. He went to the cross for me. That's why we must preach the gospel to ourselves. Let it rule in our hearts. Let his peace control you. He was crucified for you to make peace in your heart that you may have peace with your brother. He is on the throne. It is his peace in your heart that rules. But how often do we fight that? How often do we want to hold on to our grudges and petty differences? How often do we want to see what is wrong with someone else than to seek peace with our brother? Why did that happen? Why is the peace ruling in our hearts? What is that attached to? Our calling, to which indeed you were called. This is a plural here, in one body. It's not just you individually. You as the church, you plurally were called. You were called to that peace. You were called into one body. And I want you to hear this. You were called alone, but you were not called to be alone. You were called alone, but you were not called to be alone. The peace of Christ is to bring the body together. And do what? Be thankful for this. Praise God for the peace of Christ that came through the cross. Praise God that through Christ we can have peace with one another. Another thing that we'll see in this this last section, we're going to see the full aspect of how God has transformed us, but in each section there's a call to be thankful. The peace of Christ rules in your hearts. Be thankful for that. We look at the heart. Now we're going to look at the mind. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The peace of Christ and the word of Christ dwell in the believer. Our hearts are ruled by the peace. Our minds are are driven and directed by the word of God. The word of God just doesn't kind of dwell in you. It richly dwells in you. It is so valuable. Why is it rich? Why is it valuable? Because look at all of these benefits when the word of Christ dwells in you richly. It is profitable for teaching. It directs. It grows. It instructs. It is the staff that directs the sheep, the staff that points them to the good places to eat. The good shepherd directs the sheep to the green grass. The word of Christ dwells in us richly to teach again one another. We don't just teach for the sake of ourselves. We don't just store up wisdom to hide it in our hearts. We teach one another. Also, admonish one another. It is a staff, but it is also the rod. It directs, but it also corrects. We need this correction, and we know that the discipline is good for us because he loves us. We discipline our kids because we love them. The Father disciplines us because he loves them. The Word of God shows our love for one another when, it is, um, when we admonish one another in love so that we are corrected and disciplined. And we do this in all wisdom. Remember, we talked about wisdom as knowledge applied, not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's, it's not just knowledge for absorption, so I can just absorb it into myself and leave it there, but it's knowledge for application. In all wisdom, we apply God's word in teaching and in correcting. And then as we say so often, our theology should lead to doxology. 
The word of Christ dwells in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our theology leads to doxology, but the word of God also drives the praise of God. So it's not just the word and then we, we sing over here. These two things are not disconnected. Our doctrine should drive what we sing as well. And that's why we are so careful of the songs we sing. Jonathan and I have great discussions all the time about the theology behind certain songs and the songs that we pick supporting our biblical themes. Because we don't just speak the word of God to one another. We sing the word of God to one another. Um, there's a parallel passion passage in Ephesians 5 commenting on that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this to say, and I think it's great. He says, On song on earth, excuse me, our song on earth is speech. It is the sung word. Why do Christians sing when they are together? The reason is quite simply because in singing together, it is possible for them to speak and pray the same word at the same time. All devotion, all attention should be concentrated on the word in the hymn. The fact that we do not speak it but sing it expresses that our spoken words are inadequate to express what we want to say. That the burden of our song goes beyond all human words. We sing words of praise to God, words of thanksgiving, confession, and prayer. We sing because our words cannot capture what we want to say. It is melody and, and doctrine together that so somehow stirs us, and our doctrine should drive the melody of our hearts. Um, there's a lot of debate about what psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is. We know what psalms are. I don't know the distinction between hymns and spiritual songs, and it's been lost to time, so... Uh, We'll just move on with that. But the, 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 the whole point of that is that that leads us to thankfulness. A thoughtful head should lead us to a thankful heart. These things go, go hand in hand, and it must first be from your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And, great verse to memorize, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christ ruling in our hearts with his peace causes a desire for his word. And that word that dwells in us transforms us everything we say and do. So in these three verses, we talk about the heart, we talk about the mind, and we talk about the actions. Affection, cognition, volition. The, the, the complete man, the complete new man, our minds, our hearts, our heads, hearts, and hands. We're to thank God for each one of these because each one of these is attached to an aspect of Christ. Our hearts, the peace of Christ. Our minds, the word of Christ. And our actions, the name of Christ. Before we close, it's important to think about this. How would we view our actions if we recognize that everything we do should be in the name of Christ? When I yell at my wife, am I doing that in the name of Christ? When I curse out someone in my mind, am I doing that in the name of Christ? When I am angry toward my brother or sister, am I doing that in the name of Christ? When I serve, am I doing that in the name of Christ? When I sing, am I doing that in the name of Christ? His name should be able to stand by everything we do. That is a high standard. Every believer bears that name and remember that you represent it. Everything you do, do, not just do, but say, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is a high standard that none of us can live up to. But that's the goal of this transformation. That's us growing into the image of Christ. That we think Christ and we do Christ in everything in our lives. And we give thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, God, that you've given me a new heart, a new mind, and you've transformed my actions, even as often as they fall short. And this brings us full circle back to the unity of the Trinity. We thank the Father for the Son. The unity that they have one another is reflected in us and is to be remembered in our very prayers, that we are to be unified as they are. I want to end with one last quote from, from, from Bonhoeffer about thanksgiving. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, listen to this, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. We've all felt like that in the church at some point. 
But if we don't give thanks for that, but if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we've expected, God, why isn't the church the way I want it to be? Then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for all of us in Jesus Christ. When we spend so much time complaining, we miss what God is doing. We focus on what's wrong and not praising him for what's right. Thanking God for one another. I thank God for you often. As the elders, we are praying and thanking God for what he is doing here often. And we all fail miserably at focusing on what is wrong. But we have so much to praise God for. Our Savior went before us to make us new, to make us truly human. So let's put on that new self. Put off the old by a heart that is ruled by the peace of God, a mind that dwells on the word of God, and words and deeds that are known, done in the name of God. Transform man one more time. We live our new life in Christ by hearts that are ruled by the peace of God, a mind that dwells on the word of God, and words and deeds that are done in the name of Christ. Excuse me, each one of those should be Christ. Peace of Christ, word of Christ, name of Christ. Um. So I want to do this as we close in prayer. I want you to think through this passage this week. I'm going to pray through this passage and thank him every step of the way. Heavenly Father, thank you that through Christ you have put off the old self and its practices. You have given us a new self. Thank you that, we, that you are renewing us in a knowledge after the image of your Son. Thank you that there is no more religious divisions. Thank you that there's no more racial divisions. Thank you that there is no more cultural or social division. Thank you that Christ is all and in all. Thank you that we are chosen, holy, and beloved. And only because of you can we have compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience because our Savior showed it to us first. Thank you that you bore with us so that we could bear with one another. Thank you that we have been forgiven so that we may forgive. Thank you that you loved us, that we may love one another. Thank you for the peace of Christ on the cross, to which we were called. Thank you for the word of Christ that teaches and admonishes and directs our singing. Thank you that you have so transformed us that we bear the name of Christ. Pray that your spirit would direct us in all that we say and do to glorify your name. We thank you, God the Father, for the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.